My name is Jessica Word, and I'm CEO of the Word and Brown General Agency. It's a few days before the new year, and I'm here to remind you of the importance of self-love and self-care. The ultimate self-love and self-care is attained by taking time to take care of you. And that begins with doing something that's just for you and only you, even if it's for a few hours. Because if you're not taking care of yourself, then everything and everyone around you is impacted. So go take that hike you've been thinking about or spa appointment or even just a drive. But whatever you choose to do, make sure you unplug from work. That is paramount. As CEO, I strive to continue to be a leading example of what it means to embody self-love and self-care because it impacts how I show up for others. We only have one life to live, so enjoy the ride. Slow down and don't just survive, but thrive. Blessings to you and your family during this holiday season. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show where we talk about life and we talk about purpose. And along the way, we meet some inspiring individuals. Joe Foster is one of them. On our show today, we're going to talk to the founder of Reebok to figure out what it took to create a billion dollar brand. And more importantly, what it took on his own journey to get to know himself and ultimately what he learned through it all. Let's welcome him on the show. Joe, welcome to the show. Dustin, thank you for the invitation. You know, I'm really excited to get to know you. I mean, you, you're the founder of this company called Reebok. Now, tell us the early days. You know, what happened? Well, I, I guess really, if you uh, think about Reebok, you've got to think about J.W. Foster. That's my name and initials, and it's been the name and initials of the whole family since my grandfather, probably before my grandfather. But my grandfather in 1895, he invented the spike run issue. So that's the start of where we are. Reebok came about in 1958. My grandfather had died in 1933. I was born in 1935, and I was born on his birthday. So that's why I am also Joe Foster. He was Joe Foster. My grandfather had a great uh, career. He supplied a lot of Olympic athletes, a lot of gold medals through that. But unfortunately, when he died, my father and uncle took on the company, and they were at war with each other. They fought. don't know why. But like Eddie Dassler and Rudy Dassler, they also fought. Rudy had the good sense to leave and set up Puma. Unfortunately, the Foster family kept fighting, and because of that, when my brother and myself, we got into the business, we found that we had to change. And they wouldn't change, so we had to leave, and we had to set up Reebok. So now talk to me about that. I mean, reinventing yourself or starting over, it took a lot of courage. I mean, people don't give credit where credit's due. So talk about that shift. And being that it had never been done before, what was your guide and, and what was your roadmap? Well, it was very simple, our roadmap. We saw we were part of J.W. Foster & Sons, the company that had supplied the athletes, uh, Harold Abraham, uh, Eric Liddell, and Lord Burley, who were Im immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. So that was a sort of degree of business. It was really first-class business. However, as I say, father and uncle, when they took over the business, they just fought. When I was 18 and Jeff was a little older than me, we had to do national service. So we went away, we did two years national service, and you know, you start to learn a little bit more about yourself. You know, you've got to look after yourself. You, you think differently after you've been two years away from uh, the family business. So when we came back, 
By that time, I did this, I'd really made inroads into the uh, market in the UK, and uh, they'd taken soccer, whereas, uh, or football, I think soccer, of course, is, is the American term. We still use football over in the UK. And, uh, yeah, we do it wrong. <laughs> well, I don't know. We, we got to understand American football. We understand <laughs> that. But soccer, so I understand soccer because I, I've been dealing in the, in, the, in the estates for a long time. And, of course, we, when we came, we set up our own company. We had to because on coming out of the forces, we came back and we recognized a failing company. The Foster family company was failing because, you know, if you've got 50-50 father and uncle owning the company and they're just fighting all the time, there's nowhere for that to go but down. And it was going down. So when we say what motivated our, uh, our desire to set up our own company, I guess initially it was we needed a job. <laughs> we needed a future. As simple as that. We, we needed work. We needed work. We needed to set up ourselves. And uh, I, I remember challenging my father about the fact that, you know, we needed to do something at the Foster family. And all, all he could say is, look, Joe, when your uncle's gone and I am gone, this company will be yours and you can do what you like with it. And I said, Dad, number one, we don't want you to go. Number two, the company will be gone long before you. So we had no alternative. Jeff and I decided we would do, go to college in the evenings. We went to college. We went to the, a, a footwork college, which is about 15 miles away from uh, the foster business. And the good thing about that is we made a lot of friends. We made a lot of friends in the industry so that, yeah, when we, when we decided this is the time to move, we knew who to, who to ask. Where do we get the machinery from? Where do we get materials from? What do we do? So we'd done that. So we were well prepared. We moved just down the road to the next town, Berry, from Bolton, we set up in a, an old brewery. The old Berry Brewery it was a, a tumble-down building with uh, the roof was very leaky, and so we couldn't use the top floor. <laughs> we set up there, and we set up as Mercury Sports Footwear. Mercury? Mm. So that was the name? That was the name of our company, Mercury. And uh, there starts the, I don't say the problems, the challenges. This is where the challenges start. 18 months of our business, we were doing nice. We were making money. And our accountant said to me, Joe, you better register that name because uh, uh, you could run into problems. It's a nice name and other people think, yeah, those are nice products. Start making mercury shoes, you could be in trouble. So he sent me to a patent agent and the patent agent checked out the name. The name Mercury, unfortunately, was pre-registered. Some British shoe corporation, hmm. they're bigger than we are. They had it pre-registered. They were willing to sell us the name because they weren't using it. They had it registered, but were not using it. And they were willing to sell the name for a thousand pounds. And you know, we just set up a whole factory for 250 pounds. So we didn't have a thousand pounds. The patent agent said, but uh, if, you know, if you want, you can take them to court. They're not using it. Take them to court and claim the non-use of the name. And I said, how much will that cost? And he said, that would cost £1,000. So either which way, we did have £1,000. So the next thing he said, okay, you, you have to find a new name. And he pointed through the window. It was a nice day in May, and I was in his office. And he pointed through the window to Kodak. And I said, well, what's with Kodak? And he said, they made the name. That's an invented name. So if you can invent a name, fabulous. That'd be, that's the best way. He said, but don't bring me one name. Bring me 10. 
So I've got to find 10 names. And I'm sort of saying, how do you do that? And he said, well, the reason is we want 10 is that they have to be checked out by the register. And if we go one at a time and we can't get one till down the road, you could be six, nine, 12 months without a name. So you better bring me 10 names. So uh, I went back and we sit down around the table. We're thinking of names. So we think Cougar, Cougar Sports. That's a good name, Cougar Sports. How about Falcon Sports? Falcon Sports is, oh, that's pretty good, yeah. But let me take you back to 1943. 1943, this is the middle of World War II. And like COVID, you couldn't go anywhere. There was no holidays, no nothing, but they did have local events. And I'm entered into a a 60-yard race, and, and I win the race. I win the race, great. I did have one advantage. I had Foster Spike shoes on. And if you can think of Foster Spike shoes back in 1943, none of of the competitors uh, with me had Spike shoes. So maybe I was lucky to have Spike shoes on. But I won the race and I went up to collect my prize. And what do I get? I got a dictionary. And I'm saying, come on, guys, come on. I'm eight years old. What what can I do with a dictionary? Where's the football? (laughs) You know? And then to cap that off, it was an American dictionary. It was a Webster's dictionary. There are some variations on spelling, as we know. Not that at that time I would know. And I, and I suppose I could have kicked the dictionary around, but, you know, at that time it just got stuck somewhere. However, 1960, we're looking for a new name. And my dictionary just sat there next to me. And I love the letter R. I don't know why, but R was something that uh, the name should start with R. So I opened my book, my Webster's Dictionary, at the letter R. And I start thumbing through. It doesn't take long when you're thumbing through from the beginning of R to get to R-E, R-E-E, B-O-K. What's that? Reebok. It's a small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle, running company. It's brilliant. So that goes top of our list. And I go back to the agent and said, look, here are your 10 names. I forget most of those names now, but here are the 10 names. But we want this one. We want Reebok. We've, we've got to be in love with this. I mean, it's something, it's got to be our passion. You know, this is, it's got to be our future, whatever. Uh, but he's a lawyer. And he said, okay, Joe, no problem. We'll test them all through. It took him two weeks to come back to me. And he said, Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. There's just one caveat that the uh, registrar has sort of questioned. Uh, I said, what's that? And he said, well, if somebody starts making running shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Jeff and I, we looked at each other and said, that'll never happen. <laughs> you know, that, that's impossible. So we got Reba. However, because of this caveat, the registrar in his wisdom said, you've got to go in part B of the register. Up to two months ago, I didn't even know there was a register. So that didn't really make much difference. Okay, so we, we're happy with that. So you're learning, I mean, literally, you're learning this process yourself. Yes. <laughs> And 10 years after, 10 years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you to part A of the register. And we said, why? He said, because everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal has to come second. So that's how we got Reebok. That is how you got it. You know, it's interesting in your story that you were open to pivoting and that you were a learner, not a knower. Yes. And do you think that's what it takes to succeed today in business, is to be the learner? Well, I think that if you don't learn, you miss the opportunities. 
I think you have to learn. You, 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 you can uh, have some good ideas, but you usually find that uh, an idea has to move around a bit before it can become a winner. You have to learn something. You have to learn what the process is. And we learned. We, we learned a lot because we were only four years into our business when we got a letter from Adidas. The Adidas lawyers said that our silhouette, that's the stripe on the side, our silhouette infringed the three stripes. We had two stripes and a T-bar. And they said that infringed. And we, we were sort of, oh, five minutes maybe, we were just wondering what to do. Then, just a minute, Adidas know we're here. Adidas felt it necessary to send us a letter. That's great. We pinned that letter on the wall. Okay, so we, we change our silhouette. And we change from the two stripes and T-bar to the vector, which we see today. So we've got two things. We change our name and we get a better name. We change our silhouette and we get a better silhouette. So what we learn is that challenges, what you might think is a problem, is a challenge. We can change. We can pivot. We can do things. And, and I think you have to learn how to do that. You have to be open to uh, almost looking for the challenges and thinking, you know, how do we improve our company? How do we make it? And so it's step at a time. You know, we move forward. We, we do something different. And we, we also look for the white space. What we call white space is where there's, a, where there's an opening. There's not, we're not being challenged. We're going for something. We're going to make something different. So in the north of England, fell running, cross-country running, this, this was an area that Adidas and other people were not in. But we went in there and we became part, part of the athletic scene. So we, we grew as very, very important manufacturers, very important suppliers to athletes. And that, that put us a little bit above people who were just making running shoes. We, so many people just came to the factory, help us, would do anything. A lot of athletes, you know, if we wanted some joinery doing, one, one of the athletes who was a joiner would come and do it for us. So we became part of that culture. And, uh, but that's okay. But, you know, track and field and the specialised running areas that we were in, we were also in rugby league. Rugby league was a north of England uh, sport. We were in that, but it, it's, it only has a certain size. And for us to try and get into soccer, Adidas were in there, and that would have cost so much. So the next thing was, well, America. That's the big market for running, track and field. So many universities, so many uh, colleges, and you can get there on a sports scholarship. Coach, coach is God. You know, coach is really looked up to. So how do I get into America? The family were a bit sort of, now nah, too expensive. You know, it costs too much money to get to America. But the British government, they started, uh, they, were, they had an advertising campaign. And I, I am reading Eurosport. Eurosport was a nice big sports magazine. And the government were advertising, look, we, need, we want you to export. And we will pay for you a stand at the NSGA show, the National Sporting Goods of America, in Chicago. We'll, we'll pay for a stand for you. And, and we'll also pay your return airfare and half of your costs whilst you're there. So they, they wanted you to succeed. Yes. They, well, they wanted exports. So like a lot of countries want exports, balance of payments, all those sort of things. So they wanted us to, uh, to export. I didn't get any uh, objections from the family since the government was going to pay. So in 1968, I took up that uh, opportunity 
and went out to Chicago. I had a bit of a side trip to uh, New York to begin with, just to look at the sports stores, then went on to, uh, on to Chicago. And you will, you will know what Chicago's like in February. Very cold. <laughs> Very much colder than I had ever known it. So that was my first trip into America. I didn't sell any shoes. I got a lot of interest. The guys were saying, love your shoes. Where did we get it from? And I'm saying, England. And they're saying, is that New England? No, no, not New England. You know, England across the water. Oh, London. That's right. They got me. But I realized at that time that to really have a business in America, I needed distribution. And for the next number of years, I tried. I actually got into America in 1979. 11 years. It took 11 years to get there. I had six failed attempts, and I mean there were failed attempts. Where we tried to get in. But this is, this is where fortune, good fortune, came our way because early in the 70s, running. Running became a massive category in America. All of a sudden, people are out there running, training, and Nike grew tremendously fast at that point. And uh, there was a, a magazine. Runner's World. Runner's World started off as a single A4 paper that told people where the next races were, where to go for a half marathon or 10 kilometers or, or even the marathons. And by 1975, that magazine was 50 pages, full color. And so many people bought it. Well, you think at that time, about 350 million Americans, so 10% were running. And so maybe up to 35 million Americans. Well, actually, we'll, we'll say 50% of those are buying the magazine. The magazine uh, was run by Bob Anderson. And Bob Anderson, in his wisdom, he, was got so, he got so big, he decided he could tell everybody which was the number one shoe to buy. And that was Nike. It certainly wasn't Reebok at the time. So Nike, I, we, you know, we have the, the shoes. Phil Knight was importing those from Asia. And all of a sudden, maybe three and a half million people, 10% of the people that were reading Runner's World wanted that shoe. And he couldn't, he couldn't supply. Because turning, on the, turning up production so to cope just didn't happen. 12 months later, Bob Anderson of Runner's World decides, no, we'll change who is number one running shoe, which he did. And I forget, I mean, it may be New Balance, it may have been Brooks or Ciccone, Etonic, one of them but it wasn't Reebok again. However, the same retail fiasco was that nobody could supply that amount of product. A year later, Bob Anderson decided, oh, we'll, we'll change this, we'll, we'll do star ratings. So instead of saying this is the number one, if you get a five-star shoe, that'd be great. So there could be three, four, maybe five shoes, five-star. I knew at that time, we could make a five-star shoe. Making a number one shoe, too much for gamble. So it was putting together a five-star shoe. And in 1978, we had our five-star shoe, and we tested it in Edinburgh, not in Edinburgh, in Edmonton at the Commonwealth uh, Games. We got a lot of medals, and that was great. So in 1979, I'm back at the NSGA show, and I have my shoe. I have my shoe, Aztec. So then I have to ask you, as you're growing through this time period, how did you keep quality control? How are you consistent? 
I have to imagine that must have been a challenge. We made sure that our product did what it was supposed to do. You know, we had athletes who would uh, test the product. We had athletes who would even give us advice. We had Ron Hill. Ron Hill, he won the Boston Marathon and they gives 1969 in record time in, in Reebok shoes, and it's only just been broken. So, you know, we had top athletes, local top athletes who were helping. I don't think our, our production was was that brilliant, but it, it worked. I think the important thing was that uh, it stood the test of running over cross-country, fell running, doing all the things that uh, runners did in the north of England. So the quality, that was okay, but we only had a small factory. And uh, I knew that if we got a five-star shoe, we would need help. And that was, that, that was a big challenge. During the process of our growth in the UK, I'd had uh, help from various people. We knew a lot of people in, in the trade, so people were willing to help. And I had a friend who, uh, who was just setting up a sports division for barter. And barter in those days were on every street, every high street in the, in the country. They're, they're not with us. Well, they're still the biggest shoe manufacturers in the world, but they, they really specialize now in Latin America and uh, in India. Very big on those markets. But uh, my friend was setting up this, uh, the division. So he said, Joe, if you get a five-star shoe and you need some help, we'll make shoes for you. That's good. Because uh, in 1979, on the first day of the NSGA show, Kmart. Kmart came along to the stand and they said, we want 25,000 pairs. The biggest order that we did. Big order. Absolutely, a big order. 25,000 pairs. And I thought, well, fair enough. Uh, Barter can help me with that. That's okay. But then he turned around and said, uh, but we need a better price. And the better price was obvious. We had to go to Asia. In fact, we had to go to South Korea. And again, I'd pre-thought the idea of, uh, well, if we're going into volume, we probably need to get some connection with Asia. So I connected with uh, the, the agent of the largest manufacturer in, uh, in, in South Korea. So again, the 25,000 pairs, yes, we could probably get it. We could get a better price. Okay, so then the last day of the show, Paul Fireman, he, he came along and he was running a company called Boston Camping. And Boston Camping, they were an outdoor company. They were selling tents, fishing rods, all the things that you, you'd want for outdoor. And uh, he, was, he was running the company with his brother and his brother-in-law. And I think I could tell he, he wasn't particularly happy with the way things were going. I think for the last 10 years, the previous 10 years, they'd, they'd done the same business. And he was looking for something different. So he said, Joe, if you get a five-star shoe, I'll be your distributor. Fabulous. I said, Paul, come on. Come and have a look at this. And I showed him Aztec. Wow. Great shoe, Joe. But he said, that's not a five-star shoe yet, is it? No, it's not. Because the shoe edition doesn't come out until August. Actually, the last week in July. At that, I'd gone back to the UK. I then visited. I went over back to the States. And I visited Kmart. And I went to see the guy who wants to place 25,000 pairs. And he's one of about 100 different buyers. 
in a big room. And I'm wondering, well, I know 25,000 pairs of a lot of shoes, but it could be my first order, my last order, if we don't live up to the financials they expect from the area they would give us. So I left there and I went to see Paul Fireman in Boston. And I liked Paul Fireman. We, yeah, we were small. He was small, but he still had a business. And I thought this would be great. Reebok could come together and uh, bolt onto their business, and that would be nice. So I go back to the UK, and then it was the last week in July of uh, 1979, and I phoned Paul Fireman. I said, Paul, can you go to the kiosk and see how we did with five stars in Runner's World? Uh, he came back about an hour later, and he said, Joe, Aztec, you got five stars. That was it. This has been the difference. We had been pushing on that market all of a sudden with five-star shoe in Runner's World. That would, that would pull us into the market, and it did. But not only had we got uh, Aztecs five stars, we had a spike shoe called Inca. That also got five stars. And we had a racing shoe called Midas, and that also got five stars. During this process, Joe, of as you're climbing, there had to have been competitors that came along and were willing to offer you life-changing money. At that time, no. At that time, no. We, uh, we didn't have computers. We didn't have smartphones. Connection was by a telephone line, maybe telex. I don't know if you know about telex, but in those days we had telex where you, use a, you, you actually printed out a tape, a punch tape, and you fed this tape through and it sent a message. So that's all we had. Otherwise, I had to jump on an airplane and go places. Interesting. So then uh, what I'm hearing is that because of this, there wasn't this open line of communication as easy as we have it today with social media and different connected devices. You weren't going to let your competition outwork you. Right. I, I, I don't think there was the same sort of appetite for big companies buying smaller companies and taking them in. I think everybody looks after themselves as a brand. I, I go around now because I, I wrote the book Shoemaker. And a lot of people reading this, we, we go around to London Business School and University College London and talk to their EMBA students, the executive MBA students. And the teaching now is so different. The, the first thing they ask is, what, what is your exit strategy? Well, they ask me, what, is your, what was your exit strategy? And I'm saying, we didn't have one. We, we were building a brand. And uh, we didn't have an exit strategy because today's business now is how do you, how do you build something? How do you, in fact, it's not how you build it. It's how do you scale these days? And the words have changed. And it's not a change of direction. It's like you say, it's pivoting. So the, the business world has changed tremendously. What we were doing, were we, we first of all started by wanting to earn a living, wanted to become a respected sports product. We wanted to expand our business or scale our business because the opportunities just, if you were willing to take the, uh, the journeys, willing to go to the exhibitions, willing to meet people, there were opportunities. But the opportunities to uh, the present themselves today, I mean, there, there, were no, uh, there were no VCs. You couldn't go anywhere for capital except to the bank. You were all in at this stage. So then I have to ask, I mean, because this is what we're hearing a lot of the good, but what people don't know is all the hours that it took. And I imagine along the way, all the, all the losses, all the, all the failures, all the, 
the things that should have happened didn't happen, but you didn't quit and you didn't let it get you down. So talk about that time period. You know, the, the things that you, you thought were going to happen just didn't materialize because again, we only get to see Reebok today. We don't know the journey. Oh, that's right. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. And that, that happened after retiring. Uh, but if we were talking about that, that period, that 30 years period, 20 years in particular, we were busy. I was busy. I was meeting people. We were trying to grow our business or as I said, scale it. And so when, when you keep busy, okay, certain things don't happen, but a lot of good things do. You meet a lot of people. Your, your brand is still growing, although it's growing slowly. And uh, you, you have to think, well, our market is going to be America if we can get into America. So I, I just kept at it. And uh, whilst we had failures, and we did, I, I, I was with one one opportunity. We, we spent four years together trying to get the shoes. He was in Philadelphia, and we tried to get those shoes into the market. But we, we just couldn't succeed. It, and the reason was we were, we were knocking on the door and pushing, but nobody in America really knew Reebok. So the, the retailer wouldn't take the product. It was the same in, in England, right at the early stages in, in the UK. Uh, I tried to get my father to get some representative, to do some marketing. So I tried in England. I went out in my car and I called upon small businesses because the, the retail, the sports retail business was very small in those days. There was at least three sports uh, shops, sports stores, small ones in every town in the country. Now, there are about three major distributors, and they have one big place in every town. So it's totally different. But I went to these small retailers, and I'm saying, oh, I'm Reebok. And they're looking at me and saying, who's Reebok? Well, I show him the product. Oh, like your product. All right, good stuff, yeah. In the, the more than one occasion, a number of occasions, they would look around the room and say, look, I've got Adidas, and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? He didn't need Reebok. But, you know, apart from going there, we were going around to events and selling out to the back of the car. We were selling shoes to the runners. And I thought, these are my customers. These are the people I want to sell to. And very luckily, well, it's a good fortune, but every, every runner in those days belonged to a running club. And every, all these running clubs, they, they were in a book, the Three A's Handbook. Amateur Athletic Association produced a handbook, and in that handbook was the name and address of every secretary of every club in the country. So that was an invitation to me. I wrote a letter. I offered 15% off to the club, and if anybody in the club wanted to become an agent, they could take the 15%. I got 100 agents in that first letter. Eventually, I ended up with nearly 300 agents. And that was my business. Then those small retailers in every town, I got so many phone calls saying, uh, oh, Mr. Foster, you're, uh, you're actually selling to our local athletic club direct. Um, if, uh, if you stop doing that, we'll stock your product. And uh, I thought about it for a short while. And I said, no, I'm not going to stop. But you can get, the pri you can get my product at wholesale price. I'm only giving these, uh, the athletic clubs 15%. And I'm sure you could give them 15%. And still have a good business. About 90% of those guys accepted. So now we're starting to distribute on the ground through retail sources. And uh, in America, 
we we needed to be able to get into America in a in a different way, and and the different way was Runner's World. Runner's World was so influential. So getting that five stars got me the market and that beginning on the market, which was great. However, Reebok didn't grow that big on athletics and on running. We did have to pivot, and we found another white space, and that white space was aerobics. What I'm hearing is that you would see that there would be an open opportunity in the market, and then you would just enter it. Now, did you go all in? Was there... Did you create some prototype? I mean, how do you make that leap and how do you decide when to take the risk? Well, I, I think that uh, we've grown a, a, a nice culture, a winning culture in the company. But uh, we were just a running company at the time when we went into America. And Paul Feynman started doing a great job. There was a guy down in Los Angeles called Arthur Martinez and uh, his wife. His wife, Frankie, was going to these classes aerobic classes, apparently. And she was coming back home, and her and her friends really full of this. And Arnold said, what are you doing? And she said, we're doing aerobics. And then he asked the question, what is aerobics? And she said, well, we're actually exercising to music, and we love it. Great. So Arnold went to the next class, and he saw the instructor in a pair of sneakers. We think they were New Balance. Half the class were also in the same sneaker. The other half of the class were wearing no shoes. Arnold's light bulb moment, that was it. He thought, why don't we make a shoe specifically for aerobics on a woman's last, in women's sizes, and make it out of glove leather? This was his idea. He's in Los Angeles, and Paul Feynman's in Boston. So he took the first flight he could and got to Boston, got to see Paul. And he said, Paul, this is a fantastic opportunity. And Paul said, slow down, slow down. Oh, whoa, whoa, we're a running company. You know, why do we want to get into making dancing shoes for girls? And Arnold really couldn't answer that, except he was sort of saying, but it's, oh, it's going to be big. But Arnold wasn't satisfied. So Arnold went round to the back door and he met with uh, Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our production man. And he did a better job with Steve Liggett because <laughs> he managed to get 200 pairs of samples of shoe that he wanted and when they when they arrived he took them down to los angeles and uh, gave them to the instructors and some of the leading girls fantastic the girls loved them they were so comfortable in fact not just did they wear them for the aerobics they also went to work in them they, they just loved them they were on the streets all the time big problem they were made out of glove leather glove leather is not meant for shoes <laughs> They started to rip away at the bottom. As glove leather is only 0.7 of a millimeter thick, which is very thin. And then when you, you take off the surface so, so you can put the adhesive on for the sole, it goes down to about 0.5 of a millimeter. The shoes were just breaking out. But the girls didn't, the, didn't bother the girls. The girls were so happy with the product that they just went out and bought some more. They bought another pair of shoes. It took us about two months to cure this one because instead of using a, a glove leather, we started using garment leather. That was great. Fantastic. And then Jane Fonda went out and bought a pair and started to use them in her, her exercise videos. And at that point, we just exploded. We were $9 million business when, we, when this started. The year after, we were $30 million. And then $90 million, $300 million, and then $900 million. 
within five years, we'd gone from almost zero to almost a billion. And that was just an explosion. So that was where Reebok really scaled up. The problem is for four years, we didn't go out to sell a shoe. We couldn't because there were so many orders. Orders were coming in and it was just exploding. And it exploded globally. I had been going around, putting on distribution all the way through Europe, into Australia, Japan. So I was probably one of the reasons why this was growing globally, because everybody wanted the product. And the reason that uh, it grew so quickly is, again, the NSGA show, the National Sporting Goods show in America. Everybody from around the world, all the buyers from around the world, they came to see what was happening in America. And as soon as they got, uh, got to hear of the aerobics, and uh, in America, we started to put on shows at the exhibition so that the girls were up there in these shoes and we had Jane Fonda. So the growth was incredible. And the biggest problem we had was to grow from 300 million to 900 million because the problem would be, how do you get the product? As, as I said earlier on, Nike couldn't get the product when the demand was such and neither could the next number ones. So for us to get the product, and we're now talking 1983, 84. At that point, Nike had been growing tremendously, but they, they hit a wall and they had too much inventory. They had so much, they had to pull out of three factories in South Korea just when we needed those three factories. And that saved us. That made it, we, we could actually get the product. So if Nike hadn't to run into the wall, we would have probably had a big problem with delivery. So we were just delivering product. For four years, we were delivering product, more than people going out trying to find orders. Eventually, we got to uh, well, about $4 billion, But by that time, we had moved into American football. We had moved into basketball. And we have a lot of uh, top players, Shaquille O'Neal, Iverson, D. Brown. All, all these guys were wearing Reeboks. And then it went street. Really went. People were wearing these. If they went on holiday, they needed a pair of Reeboks. In fact, we we almost became the second word for sneaker. You know, go and get a pair of Reeboks. Reeboks became something almost generic at that time. And about sixty percent of Americans during the the eighties had bought a pair of uh, Reeboks. You know, I, I see the smile on your face because there's a saying that goes, "You're never going to go higher than your greatest aspiration." It appears to me that you. You beat it. As you look back on what you created, what was the ingredient? What was it, Joe, that got you there? I think it's enthusiasm. I think it's uh, you need a lot of people. And you need, you need those people. You need to share what you've got with those people. Very few people knew that Joe Foster was the founder. It wasn't about me. It was about Reebok. So it all was about the brand. And so many people coming in shared that brand, shared that feeling. And, and I think when you've got that excitement and everybody is excited about it, the, we had the enthusiasm, the optimism, and the willingness to pivot, the willingness to go for that white space. I, I think today, th this is a good thing to do. Look, look for the white space, and it gives you those opportunities. And we, we kept finding white space. Of course, as you get bigger, we came to become more performance, but... And that performance was the thing that drove the company. I guess we were lucky because you, know, you have a product, it's quite sexy, it's a beautiful product, and it's three-dimensional. We changed really the feeling of sports shoes. 
we had through aerobics, we got into soft leather, which meant your shoe didn't need breaking in. You know, a lot of uh, sports shoes, they were quite firm leather and it needed breaking in. So uh, this was so soft, so so great. And Paul Feynman and the uh, the group up in Boston were doing such a brilliant job. And when we, when we got into tennis, we were quite happy to challenge the sport because uh, I know I remember... The, the the American advert that went in there that uh, the strap line was Reebok put the balls on the line, and the deal was if you didn't if you didn't think that Reebok were the best shoes you'd ever worn, we'll give you your money back and we'll give you a can of balls. I, I know Paul Feynman had a few nightmares as to whether <laughs> they they could actually sustain and they could actually get give enough uh, tennis balls. Like, would they get a lot of shoes back? As it happened, he he bought two cases. And he only went through half a case of, uh, of tennis balls, so uh, so he did quite well. So it was, you know, it was those sort of things. And another one of the best things that happened to Reebok was Pump. I don't know if you're aware of the Pump shoe. The Pump, when that came out, everyone everybody wanted a pair of the Pump, and the kids couldn't afford them. They were too expensive. But you, know, you see D Brown there dunking from the halfway line, bending down and pumping his shoe up, and that 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 sort of you know, that sort of advertising you just really can't pay for because everybody loved it. And now when I'm in America, most of the time I'm meeting guys, guys in the late 40s, probably early 50s, say, I was a kid at the time when the pump was out. We all wanted a pump. I remember, the, I remember the pump. Yeah. So as we now close it down, you know, I have to ask, you know, talk to, talk to the entrepreneurs out there, the ones that have the ideas that are maybe collecting dust, or they don't know how to execute. Talk to them. Is it too late to reinvent themselves? Is it too late to begin? It's, it's not too late if they've got some ideas, but they also have to have, to be an entrepreneur, you've got to have uh, optimism. You've got to be the one that can uh, look, at, look at the problem, turn it into a, uh, a challenge, and then find a way around that problem by the challenge. And very, very f few times did we have to... Uh, say to any any problem that we can't handle this or we have to find money or something like that more often than not we we took the challenge and found something different and usually ended up with uh how can i say we usually ended up in a better position and i think anybody who uh, who has an idea in, in in this the present time because there are so many vcs out there and people are growing or they're, they're the business is scaling even faster than Reebok, but it has to be in tech these days. And in tech uh, technology, they do scale very fast, and we know that that has happened. You know, to become a unicorn, you've got to be able to uh, go from zero to a billion in 18 months or something like that. <laughs> so the opportunities are, are, are really out there. And uh, this is what's keeping uh, Julie and myself moving. So many people want to talk, talk about the book, talk about the experiences, and most of them wonder how we managed to do that without, without computers, without smartphones. Because we look now, we look at what we are doing and, and what COVID has done to bring forward the use of Zoom. Now it's incredible. I mean, it's, it really is. So, you know, there, there are so many new ways of, uh, I don't say, I think, I think a, a lot of uh, investors just look for the way out, the way to make a very quick buck you know get the company to, to build it big in the shortest time and then sell 
That, that seems to be a, a lot of the way of business. For me, my day was building a brand. So it was always about building the name, the brand. I don't know. I think there are still brands being created out there. Uh, we meet a lot of people that have made a lot of money quickly on, on the tech boom. So it's fair to say, at least at this stage, that while life's tough, billion-dollar brands are tougher. Yes. There must be probably only 1% of those that really set out with a brand get to a billion. But in, today, there are more brands now. I don't think it's brands that are making them. I think it's the technology coming out with some new technology that builds something rapidly. So what are you then learning today? What we're learning today is that uh, having, having gone through the experience that we went through, what we're learning is that a lot of other people really want to try to grab that opportunity of, again, having the resilience, having the optimism to become a real entrepreneur. I wrote the book Shoemaker because having stepped back from Reebok and uh, quite a few years later, we were living then in Tenerife and I am, now we've got computers, now we've got smartphones and they're telling me how Reebok started. There's also a photograph of Joe Foster. Might have been Joe Foster, it certainly wasn't me. The stories they sang about how Reebok grew, untrue. So the, I thought, I need to write a book. So writing the book took about five years, a lot of uh, drafts and uh, a lot of help. People who would say, no, you don't use anecdotes, you know, you don't use this. You don't. And, and we got a book out there. So now with Reebok, when we were about four, four billion, the challenge had gone. By that time, you've got so many people, so many accountants, so many lawyers, so many people in between, designers. That, uh, all I was doing was, um, I was more or less going around the world three times a year just being an ambassador. I was also hosting a pro-celebrity tennis tournament in Monte Carlo, which was great because we had all the, uh, the sort of number one, the actors and whatever, Sean Connery, um, Roger Moore, Charlton Eston, so many. I mean, I, I have lists of it, but uh, I can't remember them all. But we just had A-listers. And so it, it was a great, uh, a great time. It did occur to me this can only go on so long and it's better if I decide when I back out. So that's when I backed out and that was uh, 1990. It was a great time. And now having written the book and we're finding there's a lot of people now want to talk to us, then we're traveling again. And in fact, even with Reebok, we're in Panama City uh, because the, the new people working for ABG, Latin America, all the Latin American new distribution, were coming to Panama City, and uh, so they wanted me to give them a talk, talk about Reebok, talk about the beginnings. So, so that was good, and then I went from Panama City, and I don't know why we did this, we went to Saudi Arabia from Panama City. But uh, again, it's talking about the book. What, what I hear is something that's better than a TED Talk. It's a mastermind class, and that's what you have given today. You've given a class on Reebok, the true history, the true beginnings, the yes. origin. And today you are still the brand and I see it all over you. I, I, I can feel it's the, it's the smile, it's, it's the energy that it accomplished something that others would say it's impossible. And you said, it's not impossible and we're going to do it. And you did. So congratulations, Mr. Foster. You created a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar brand. One of the biggest, most well-named brands in the world. And you did that. Thank you again for sharing your story.
with all of us. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely is. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe, for sharing such a powerful story. And to the audience out there, what was your takeaway? Mine was clarity of motive. Joe knew his motive going in, and Joe ultimately knew that the universe was conspiring to help him succeed. That brings to mind a quote. The more clarity you achieve, the more you will find that the universe is on your side, supporting your thoughts and your intentions. Therefore, focus on clarity, not on getting results. The results will come according to their own rhythm and timing. Deepak Chopra. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Life's tough. You, you can be tougher.